Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is just a reminder that everything on the podcast is intended to be informational, educational, and entertaining. This is no way a substitute for therapy or the therapeutic process. If you find yourself in need of more direct support, please reach out for professional help. Or if you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or call 911. Hey everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you're listening to the Labors of Love podcast. I'm very excited today. I have with me a special guest. He is the CEO and founder of Clarigen Health, Don Wright. Hi, Don. How are you today? Hi, LaShonda. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very thankful uh, that you've joined us today to talk about uh, all the wonderful things that you have going on. So I'm going to start with you like I do all of my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? Like the uh, the short answer to what is my labor of love is uh, ending suicide. Ending suicide, um, such a very powerful and needed labor of love. Can you uh, tell us how this became a labor of love for you and where this passion is rooted? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so it's interesting. Um, not probably where someone might normally how or how somebody might normally answer this question. Um, my, you know, my background is all in computer science. I've built some really cool things that we won't talk about here, but I mean, you know, banking applications and Disney's ticketing system and those types of things. Um, and did that for most of my career and then was given an opportunity to help start a company. Um, a, the company I was at previous to this, um, working with uh, genetics to determine which mental health uh, medications would work best for a patient. And um, as I did that, um, I remember I, I went, talked to the investors. They asked if I had an interest. I went home, my, uh, told my wife about it, and she said, that's wonderful. Um, good news. You don't have to leave Cincinnati again, which is something I've successfully done, even though I've run companies that were based in Seattle and Boston. Um, but you know, you don't actually believe that these diseases really kind of exist, right? You're one of the the people in the world who, when somebody has depression, you say buck up camper, or when they're anxious, you say calm down. And I said, well, you know, maybe I'll build a company that helps prove that these medications aren't needed. And then, you know, within a day or two of doing the research on whether I was going to go to the company and spending a day uh, at Children's Hospital and a, and a day uh, out at the Mayo Clinic talking about what is really going on with mental health uh, conditions um, around the world, but primarily in the United States at that time uh, for that company, I realized that I was one of the unenlightened, uh, ignorant people who um, doesn't understand what's going on with behavioral health. I remember um, pitching to investors and having to stop on all the early slides and those presentations and and confirm for them that the statistics we were putting up on the screen were even true. Things like 500 million prescriptions a year in a country that has 320 million people um, and that only 45% of those people get any better um, from taking those medications in the first six months. Um, and so, you know, I became a, a zealot for mental health. Now, 
what many people know, because I talk about it publicly, is that we started this company three years ago with the first product being a product to help in identifying those with uh, suicide ideation um, to, to help catch people before they end up in the emergency department or, or God forbid, um, uh, you know, successfully completing a suicide. Um, but two years ago, a year after I started um, this company, my 28-year-old son killed himself. So um, that's not why I started this company, but it certainly has added to the mission and the and the focus uh, for me on trying to end suicide. Thank you so much for sharing. And and there are so many aspects of just this opening that were very powerful to me. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to just maybe talk about each of them a little bit. The first being um, you noting that you said you were one of the unenlightened ones, that you were a person and your wife noted that if someone said they were suffering from depression, you'd say, hey, buck up. And if someone was anxious, you'd say, calm down. And that's not unheard of. I'm not sure if you are a sports fan or not, but there was recently um, an NFL quarterback who came out to talk about um, his battles with depression. And um, he disclosed that his brother had completed suicide. And there were still uh, a number of people, but one uh, notable sports commentator who continued to kind of talk about the rhetoric of just kind of like that shows weakness and you can't be a leader and, and just these different things. So it sounds like at some point you may have fallen into the camp that believed that way and would have said those things. Can you talk about what led, what were some of the things that kind of insulated that thought process and worldview for you? So why did I think that way before? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I grew up on the West side of Cincinnati, very blue collar. Um, you know, I've, I've had conversations um, even, even with my personal um, psychiatrist now um, around how I'm very, I'm, I'm happy that in each kind of, uh, successive uh, generation, I think we all get a little bit more enlightened. I think my kids are certainly um, more aware of these types of things than I ever was at, at their age. Well, certainly with their, with their brother um, completing a suicide. But um, I think that, uh, you know, we, I lived in a household that I think like most probably back then that didn't talk about depression, that didn't, um, bring these things up that certainly didn't, uh, air their, their dirty laundry to the neighbors. Right. Um, and, uh, I think that, um, the inability to, to just talk about these things, um, is part of the problem, um, with even being able to come up with solutions for them. So I don't think it was, you know, anything other than truly ignorance, not, you know, not malice, um, towards, towards others. I think it was, just didn't grow up around people who talked about it. And, uh, and I think that's true and has been true for a very long time. I mean, I think about, you know, so 2007 is when I got involved with Assurex, the previous company. And so that's when that story about talking to my wife took place. And even back then, even within that company, there were times where we talked about how people still weren't talking about depression. And I think depression, especially and anxiety to, to a lesser extent, but, but certainly more than suicide are now talked about 
a lot more easily. It's it's not hard at all to go on your social media and say that you have depression and you're taking Zoloft and and you know those types of things. People, I don't think there's a lot of stigma around that anymore, except as you said, in you know maybe sports and maybe the military. Um, but I um, but I don't I don't think we're there yet with suicide. I think it's still very difficult to talk about suicide, um, which is why I encourage people. I, I think people have to have to be willing to talk about what they're willing to talk about. Um, I don't judge people for not being willing to talk about it. I probably talk to a group of parents every week who's lost a child because as someone who's lost a child, you get to be part of that club you never want to be in, right? So I talk to them. Um, and I think, you know, that it's, it's very different between different people on what they're willing to talk about. They're typically willing to talk to me. They often don't want to talk. Uh, you can, you can see it. Um, they don't even want to talk about it in the announcement or, or have their friends or their coworkers know what happened. Um, but I see that getting better. Um, I, it, it has to get better before we can solve the problem. If you're not willing to talk about it, I liken it to the AIDS, um, HIV um, situation a long time ago when when there was still a huge prejudice against, um, or, or much more than there is today, certainly, um, against gay males in the United States. And it was just a gay male problem. I just said with air quotes, um, the the problem wasn't looked at until we started to figure out that it was starting to hit other people and we were willing to talk about it. And it wasn't embarrassing to say that you were HIV positive because you could, it, 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 it could be something that you could potentially live with if the therapies were done properly, you know, things started to change in how we took care of that disease. And I think that if the same thing, if you're not willing to admit that you have depression or you're not willing to admit that suicide ideation actually exists, then you're never going to solve the problem. <laughs> Yeah, Don, you said so much there. Thank you. That was so like on point. And part of a lot of it is not talking about it. And I think the thing uh, that happens is so there's the there is the thing, whether it's HIV AIDS, whether it's suicide, uh, and I'll even bring in now whether it's COVID. Yeah. So there's like the thing, right? But then there's all of these things perceptually that are attaching itself to it. And that's what people aren't willing to talk about. I have, I've known several numerous people who have uh, contracted COVID over this time. And so many of them don't want to talk about it. They right. don't want people to know because it's not, I don't want you to know that I had co or have COVID per se, but all of the perceptions that are going to come with you knowing I had it. Was I being careless? Was I hanging out? Do I not care about myself and my family? And so there are all of these kind of cultural and societal messages that attach themselves to these issues that we're talking about that I think really makes it complicated for people to want to talk about. No, and it's it's a great point. I think I think COVID actually is a um, maybe even a better example than the the HIV AIDS example that I gave because COVID, while it is possible that you were um, not being careful, um, there's we still don't even really understand. Um, I mean, even just today, right? CDC took down their um, the new uh, policies they were putting out um, about how long it stays in the air and and how far away you should really be standing away from each other and and the fact that somehow we would be ashamed to admit that 
we have COVID and then, you know, because maybe we did something wrong, but then also how, you know, how long can you really be around these people? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- that was the HIV thing, right? People weren't willing to have a kid with HIV in the school with their kids because they thought you could potentially get it from the person sneezing and those types of things. And I think that depression, you know, one of the things I tell people all the time is, you know, there are many different conditions that a human might find themselves in where potentially it was their, I don't want to say their fault, but maybe they didn't take care of themselves. Maybe, you know, and so they, they contracted a disease in in later life or something like that. But, you know, depression and anxiety and those types of things, I mean, in many cases you're born with it or you develop it through, um, you know, traumatization or those types of things. It's highly unlikely that you did something that caused you to start suffering from depression, right? It's not mm-hmm. your fault, right? Yeah. So the whole idea that it's somehow your fault or that you're weak because you have depression is absurd. I mean, look at the the percentage of people in the United States diagnosed with some form of depression or anxiety. And that's, you know, and I say all the time, I mean, anytime you're talking about statistics around mental health, they're always underreported because, whole sets of society and whole groups of people aren't willing to go and get diagnosed. Right. So, you know, so it's never, it's never that there's, you're overstating how many people are depressed. Um, And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, I think we, um, I, I, I use an example and and he's heard me say it many times, including on stage. So it's okay that I say this, but my, my co-founder here um, about 10 years ago or so, um, found out that he had diabetes and so completely had to change his life. And he came into a staff meeting um, where I was, I was his boss. And, uh, and he said, Hey, I, I want to make an announcement. Uh, if any of you own, you know, uh, stock in candy companies or, uh, or soft drink companies, you should sell it immediately because I just found out I have diabetes. And we all laughed and we joked about it and talked about how, you know, we're going to have to decide if we're allowed to bring cupcakes to the staff meetings anymore and everything. And, and I sat back and I looked at everybody and I said, so what's interesting is we are a mental health company. We are all the leaders of that mental health company. If Bill had found out yesterday from his doctor that he was bipolar, would Bill have been okay with coming in and telling us that? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's a personal choice, obviously, but, you know, if anything, I mean, he would have probably been born bipolar, right? I mean, he he developed diabetes later in life partially because, I mean, partially it was genetic and he, he was prone to it, but, but he led a lifestyle that, that potentially caused that to happen. And he had no problem whatsoever telling us that. Right. So, you know, and so if we're not willing to talk about at my son's funeral, I started my, my talk about him by saying anybody who is going to be shocked by hearing about suicide should step out for the next six or seven minutes. Cause I'm going to talk about suicide and what it, and what this has done to him and what I think it's going to do to my family. And then I'm going to spend the rest of the time talking about how great a kid he was and, and how much we loved him and funny stories about him. Right. But, you know, and some people don't like to have those conversations, but I think at a minimum, you know, the, the fact that we have just not that long ago started to think about from a research perspective and a treatment perspective that, suicide is is not just like the worst outcome of depression right it's actually its own thing that can be um you know confounded by depression and those types mm-hmm. um completely changes how we think about treating these diseases and the fact that chronic suicide ideation and acute 
uh, episodal suicide um, may not, even though they look the same in, in what happens, may not have really anything to do with each other, right? As far as how you treat them and how you diagnose them. So, I mean, thank God it's, it's it, that I use the cancer analogy, right? I mean, everybody was afraid of cancer. And then you start realizing that there's a gazillion things we call cancer and they're all very different. You can't treat them with the same drugs because they really, you know, for the most part, you know, they're the hyper acceleration of, of cell growth, but um, you know, breast cancer and pancreatic cancer are two very different beasts. Right. And, um, and I, I still think today that we, we're doing a terrible job from a research perspective about thinking about what depression is um, and, and in many ways, not acknowledging that these mental health disorders are really spectrum diseases, right? Um, it's not that you're depressed versus anxious versus bipolar. It's you're many of those things. And you're just at different places on that, on that dial and not even, you know, not even as a person, in the same place, any, you know, day to day, let alone your depression and my depression aren't the same. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, I think this might be um, the first time that some people are hearing these things said in such pointed ways. And so I appreciate that. In addition to talking about it, period, like let's talk about it. And, you know, that's one of the things as I talk about trauma all the time, is it's one of the things that um, has uh, created the avenue for generational trauma to pass from generation to generation to generation is that people are not talking about these things. And so we ignore it, we avoid it, we sweep it under the rug, we act like it didn't happen and, and that doesn't help. But in addition to talking about these things, I think how we talk about them is very important. And so something I want to point out to the listener, I don't know if they've picked up on it or not. Um, we did not discuss this beforehand, but we both speak, uh, have used one word that a lot of people uh, don't use when talking about suicide, but it's very important. And we've talked about completing versus yep. committing. And that is, that is a huge difference. Um, to even just choose our language and how we choose to uh, talk about mental illness, how we talk about suicide and suicidality. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, you talk about this very often. And in addition to that, and your, you know, the work that Clarigen does, which we'll get into, you have this very, very close personal experience with it. How much does language matter? Well, <laughs> That's a loaded question because of what my company does. But um, the from language of talking about it, you're exactly right. Um, you know, it's funny because every once in a while I slip and and I actually say committed suicide because, you know, that's kind of what what it was always called when I was growing up. And and I try to be very clear about well, and, you know, the genesis of that is just like committing murder. Right. Because it was considered mm -hmm. a, a crime and a sin and, and everything else. And, and, and it's it's different you know this this whole these ideas that you know suicide is the most selfish thing you could ever do and all those types of things i, I guarantee you that you know people are not sitting there think, considering uh taking their own life thinking how great it'll be that it'll harm everybody else and in, in most cases and especially if you listen to and i i would encourage anyone who wants to try to understand um well, there's many, many things I would encourage you to do. One thing that's really interesting is listening to, uh, and you can find them on the internet, um, 
the stories of and the interviews of people who have attempted and uh, and failed at a suicide. Um, I've uh, I've become good friends with Kevin Hines, who's one of the the kind of the most famous of those people. Who he's awesome. Yeah, um, and and he's uh, now doing some things with my company too. But he and I'm speaking at <coughs> a national conference uh, this coming weekend, and um, you know, to a person like if they jumped off a bridge, um, they, you know, they changed their mind <laughs> on the way down. Um, and, and it's an interesting thing. I mean, many of those people were not, they weren't removing themselves from the earth to harm other people or hurt other people. They actually felt that they were so overwhelmed and that they were actually a drag or a, or a harm to others by being around. And this would actually be good for everybody else, right? Nobody will have to take care of me. Nobody will have to put up with me anymore. Everybody's life is going to be better. Um, if, if I do this and, you know, and if you start thinking like people are thinking, and I tell people all the time, um, the logic of actually doing it is pretty hard to figure out because we are a, a species, um, that is built around self-preservation, right? We, our instinct is to protect ourselves, whether it's fight or flight, it's built into us. So when, when a human being decides to take their own life, something pretty dramatic and traumatic has happened uh, in their life. And, and if you can think those ways and speak those ways, um, you can actually start working on the actual problems, right? I mean, an example, not, so much just about, well, it is about suicide, but, um, you know, I think as we try to solve problems, actually using kind of facts <laughs> and statistics and actual statistics can actually help in those instead of arguing the, the politics of, of, uh, of a situation. And, you Imagine know, that. yeah. And, and something that I, um, that I, I didn't know until, um, until I did my Ted talk actually. Um, and I was researching statistics, honestly, just fact checking myself because, you know, if you're going to be videotaped and put up on, uh, on, uh, the internet for perpetuity, you don't want your first slide to have a, a bad statistic on it. But, um, you know, in, in 2017, the last time we have the, the, um, the numbers for this, about 40,000 deaths happened in the United States from handguns, right? So 40,000 deaths, 24,000 of those are 60% were suicide and only 14,000 were homicides. So the handgun problem in the United States is, a, you know, if we could eliminate suicide, two thirds basically of our, of our handgun deaths in the United States would go away. I mean, these problems are, we, we don't even understand the statistics or the or to your question, the the language or the or or how to describe the problems that are happening, and so we end up arguing or not funding the right thing or the right research or or not even looking at the right problem. Um, try to solve these things. I mean, you know, I mean, you probably know this, but the number one number one best indicator that someone is going to commit suicide is that they've previously attempted suicide. Right. And the only thing that basically statistically has shown, I mean, other than like putting them in a room where they literally cannot do it, um, is personal interaction with somebody. Right. People in this day and age. Well, it's probably always been true, but, you know, um, hey, how you doing? 
to most people is just saying hi to somebody, right? So we say, hey, how you doing today? And somebody says, yeah, pretty good. And you're like, no, really, I'm actually asking, how are you doing? You know, which is um, a very different question. A good friend of mine um, who's on our um, advisory board here and studies suicide um, as her profession, uh, Jennifer Wright Berryman here in town, um, talks all the time about, you know, if you're walking down a um, down the center of a mall and somebody in front of you grabs their chest and falls down and stops breathing, you wouldn't step over them and keep walking to the next door you were going to. You would make sure that someone was called 911. You might start CPR. You might start trying to find a defibrillator, the thing, the word I can never say, defibrillator. Um, that was good. Yeah. Like, um, you'd do something. Or you'd make sure somebody else was doing something, right? But if you saw somebody fighting with somebody on the phone and then taking their phone, putting it in their pocket and sitting down on the ground crying, most people would just step around that person because they wouldn't want to get involved. They wouldn't want to be embarrassed. They wouldn't want to embarrass the person. You know, that person might be going out to their car and harming themselves. Just you saying to them, are you okay? Do you need a coffee? Might save their life. And so you are really reaching into what is so fundamentally important Uh, to us as human beings, and that's relationship. Um, We are biologically created and driven to connect with other people. And at some of the most pivotal moments in people's lives, what you will hear people talk about are the relationships and the connections that helps them move through that difficult time. And suicide and suicide ideation is no different. Um, And so I just really appreciate just having this open, candid conversation about something that people avoid talking about. When you mentioned your son's funeral, and I'm sorry for your loss, what stood out to me was how you said, okay, this is what I'm going to talk about. And how many times I can, I know that I can say in my personal life and professional life that someone has died by suicide and that's not mentioned anywhere. No one's talking about it. And and so there isn't this awareness. Um, and because people aren't bringing awareness to it, there aren't these conversations. Uh, but it leaves this gap. And the terrible thing about gaps is when people lack facts, they just fill them in with whatever they want. <laughs> and right. so we're having some some conversations are happening, but they're not happening with the the right information and with the facts that you're talking about. And yeah, so I just appreciate that. So tell us about Clarigent and and what your company's role is in your labor of love, which is ending suicide. So Clarigent uh, Health um, <clears throat> is an artificial intelligence um, and machine learning company. Um, so fancy words for using computers to do things, right? Um, Typically doing things that um, humans could do if they could perceive a certain part of it or or the computer just does it a lot faster and and a lot more efficiently, right? Um, But we we are specialized right now in uh, vocal biomarkers. So basically having software that's listening to someone speak. And so... um, this technology originally came out of Cincinnati Children's Hospital, um, a brilliant man uh, named John Pestian, uh, who I've worked, I had worked with before, uh, has been working on this for 15 or 20 years um, and started with 
the uh, largest set of suicide notes um, from people who have completed a suicide uh, in the world, as far as we know. Uh, and so we have access to that. That's how the original algorithms were built. And then it was um, after the first clinical trials, uh, it was changed to spoken word because that was a product that we we all thought would um, be more useful, uh, you know, in the in the world. And not just looking at how people are writing their words, but listening to how they're saying their words. So, um, you know, in layman's terms, it is um, it is looking at the content and structure of how you're speaking. So the words you're saying and where those words are in relation to other words. Um, and then uh, also acoustics. So uh, are you flattening vowels? Are you speeding up or slowing down in your speech? You know, literally nanoseconds between syllables and those types of things. Um, and, uh, and how guttural and breathy things are when certain questions are asked. So, um, so it's a simple speak to your patient for about six minutes uh, on a couple of uh, relevant topics. And it uh, compares what the person says with the models that have been built um, from gaining samples from, from people through clinical trials and uh, comes back with a kind of relative score of, of where you are on the suicide ideation scales. Um, that's what the current product is. We're expand, we have expanded it now to, um, to look at a person over time. So instead of just getting kind of that first time, um, interaction with a person where you're comparing to the, to the population samples that you have. Um, it learns more about you, the more times you're interviewed by your, by your physician. So, um, it, it can create a baseline for you and, and determine whether your trajectory is positive or negative. Um, and so that's obviously super helpful for lots of reasons. Um, both from a fine tuning to a person, but also, once you can do those types of things, you literally, you can see if a person's getting better or worse so that you might want to change therapy, but also after you change a therapy or, or do an interaction of some sort, you can actually see more quickly than what normally happens in behavioral health, what direction the person went. I mean, we all know you put people on medications sometimes and they actually get worse, right? I mean, what's the number one black box warning on, on, uh, antidepressants and antipsychotics, suicide ideation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, quickly you can start to see whether that person is actually getting, you know, better or worse. And, and really, um, and I know, you know, this, but many people probably don't realize that what, especially when you're talking about suicide, um, you're looking for change in the patient that can't be correlated to any, um, reason for that change. Right. So, um, and, and an example I always use, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious to people that if somebody seems to be getting worse on the scales that they might be moving towards crisis, but, um, but it's also equally as bad for them to get way better on the scales with there being no apparent reason for that happening. So, and, and the way that would kind of, um, show itself in the real world is, uh, someone takes their own life and everybody at the office when they find out on Monday is, of course, upset, but also says, wow, you know, he's he's been depressed his whole life. We've known him forever. He's always been kind of gloomy and and we knew there might be an issue there. But really, for the last few weeks or the last month, he's been really happy and really different. We thought he maybe he had he had 
you know, come around the corner. Well, the reason was because in his own mind, he had made a plan now. And so he didn't have the burden of the rest of his life there. He had a plan. He knew what he was going to do and he ended his life. Right. So there's, there's lots of things to watch for that are counterintuitive. And what this system is doing is giving those types of insights back to the physician or back to the uh, mental health professionals so that they can use it in their, in their course of treatment. Thank you so much for sharing. And, um, you know, when I talked to the Clarident team and learned a little bit about this technology and, and the goal, it, it was so fascinating and so needed because I frequently talk to people about, so all behavior has a meaning. Right. It's all connected to something. It's all meeting a need. As you said earlier, we as human beings um, are, are hardwired for survival um, and safety. And the challenge with humans, as we look at another person, is we are interpreting their behavior through the lens of our own mental library, through the lens of our own experiences, through the lens of our own uh, worldviews and beliefs. So when we first started, we talked about, you know, the, the former beliefs that you held. Well, you were looking at life through the lens of Westside Cincinnati, personal family experiences, blue collar, a lot of the worldviews that come with just growing up being done right. Right. And, 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 and that, that led you to certain conclusions and me growing up in Detroit, Michigan would have looked at a, the same exact thing and come to some very different conclusions, probably a lot of times because of the lenses that we are looking at it through. And so when we're working with someone being aware that we are filtering their experience through our own lens is huge. And, and unfortunately, sometimes people think they are way more objective than they are. And, yeah. and so we kind of convince ourselves that we're looking at a person objectively um, and, and we're not, or sometimes it's filtered through what we want it to be. So in the example that you gave, and I've seen that happen with uh, some students that I've worked with young people where people, family and friends say the same thing. They had, they had, they were so much better. You know, they were so much better over the last few weeks. And, but see, even the use of the word better tells me that they had filtered that. It's not that the person was actually better, but the things they saw coming out of them, a smile, a little more attentive to other people um, and things, uh, it caused them through their filter to say, oh, that's better. Um, I know that uh, Sandy Hook Promise is an organization that I've done work with, and we do some youth-facing programming, and one of them is uh, Say Something, teaching young people to know the signs. Um, and, and to tell someone and say something. And one of the things we highlight um, are just changes in behavior, like you said, that aren't attributed to something else and certain behaviors, like giving away personal possessions yeah. and personal things and, and, and starting to notice things like that. Well, if a person is not attuned and, and aren't, aren't aware of this, they'll just make up a story. Oh, they like me now. Or they're just showing me all of these different things. So I can appreciate that you're creating technology that might um, unflower or maybe not flower, but create a lens that gives us a little more objectivity to what's happening than what our own brains will allow us to do. Yeah, we uh, we talk a lot about it being one of, if not the first objective measure in in behavioral health, right? Because, the, you know, the tagline for our company is bringing technology to mental health. And I think that... Um, there's, there's some technology, of course, in, in mental health, um, 
but but nothing close to to other disease states, um, which of course has been mostly funded or caused by lack of funding. And um, I mean, look, if if twenty five years ago we had created a a National uh, Institute of Mental Health that actually um, was focused on solving the problem of mental health like the Cancer Institute was and did the same types of things, then we would be, you know, well, literally decades <laughs> farther along in, in trying to solve these problems, right? Um, that and not being willing to pay psychiatrists for um, for office visits, basically, right? I mean, most people probably don't even realize that you know, even today with the way the parity laws have gone into effect, it's still often easier to get approved to go to the chiropractor than it is to go to the psychiatrist. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and, and we've caused a situation where now only 10% of psychiatrists in the United States even do talk therapy anymore. Right. They're all just doing med checks because they can't, they can't make any money. They can't spend an hour with every patient. Um, they, unless they're in, um, private pay, because insurance just doesn't pay them enough to, um, you know, it, we should pay for what we care. Well, we should pay for what's important and what we care about. Right. The, the fact that, you know, teachers don't make enough enough money and um, and we aren't willing to put money into public schools properly to to fund them. And, and we don't fund behavioral health research and, and care um, is so lopsided in in how important those things are and 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 yet how we we treat those things as uh, as humans. It speaks volumes for sure. I have a question regarding kind of, um, uh, what am I, um, just like, so thinking culture, um, and things like that. So when we talk about this, um, technology that you're building, what's going, uh, into the process that looks at some of the different nuances across cultures, uh, race, ethnicity, uh, geographics, um, or what is the research saying about that? Are there differences? So that's a great question. Um, and so, well, first of all, we know there are, there are cultural differences that will, um, that will always, well, hopefully not always, but that, that definitely cause problems, um, right now. Right. So, um, the, the fact that, um, seven out of 10 suicides in the United States are white males um, is an interesting statistic to me all of the time. And that twice as many um, males uh, attempt versus, or I mean, twice as many um, men actually successfully complete a suicide, um, but three times as many women attempt, right? And we've kind of half jokingly, um, you know, there's some you, you have to you have to have a little bit of humor when you do this kind of work because uh, if not if not you're reading 3100 uh, you know suicide notes all, all day long. Um, the um, what's interesting is that um, you know females um, attempt in different ways than males uh, typically, right? Boys are. Um, boys are more rough stereotypically and boys jump off bridges and they shoot themselves. Right. And and girls take pills. And, um, and uh, what's interesting about that is I I think there's a big misperception there. There's a slight tangent, but not really in that 
we, we talk about small cuts versus, you know, actual attempts and all those types of things. And I, and I think that a lot of um, what happens with, um, with women in particular is not that they were trying to get attention, right? This is back to the same thing, like the buck up or the whatever. Oh, she was just trying to get attention clearly because she took a bunch of pills and then called her friend. She took a bunch of pills and she called her friend to apologize and, and to say she was sorry that she killed herself. And luckily she took pills and didn't put a gun to her head because there was time to go save her. Right. So, yes. you know, um, it, it's very similar to, to what I said earlier about jumping off a bridge. And as soon as you step off, realizing that you've made a mistake, but you've already jumped off a bridge. So what are you going to do? Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, but if you think about like culturally, um, you know, the African-American um, demographic uh, historically has, has not gone to um, behavioral health and, and uh, mental health uh, physicians, um, in the same numbers as uh, Caucasian. Um, and so we have started spending a lot more time trying to figure out, well, first of all, we have a, our product right now, one of our products is in schools, right? So making sure that all of our, all of our research isn't being done in um, kind of Mason, Ohio, right? Because there's lots of other demographics um, to make sure that you capture all the demographics that exist, even in Cincinnati, which is, of course is not as, uh, racially or, um, or in any way as diverse as many other cities in the United States. But, um, but if you're not going to see a, even a social worker or a, um, or a psychologist, psychiatrist, or, or whatever type of, um, uh, mental health professional that you would see, then, then we need the, the tools in the hands of other people, which is why I think, uh, like you were talking about earlier, some of the peer-to-peer things, training people for what to look at, getting things like this in the hands of school counselors and school teachers, and, and maybe even um, we're working really hard to try to start working with clergy and other, um, uh, you know, the places where people are, right? So um, if you're not in a psychiatrist office, you know, not many people take their own lives in the psychiatrist office, right? And not many people, quite frankly, have a whole. I mean, your if 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 your therapist's office is not your one of your safe places, then you're going to the wrong therapist, right? So, you know, you might break down and have all kinds of you know things develop while you're having those conversations, but but you feel pretty safe in that office and and you live 99% of your life not in that office. And so where we're looking um, at embedding this technology and we're working um, with a hospital system in North Carolina right now, um, and uh, we'll be working with some of them um, hopefully around here too, is besides being in the schools, is just getting this into primary care, getting it into um, down in... Um, Wake County, North Carolina, we're looking at um, partnering with this healthcare or this uh, hospital system, sorry, um, into things like um, into the food pantries, into um, into EMS system. So, so um, you know, getting it with the paramedics, getting it with the people who are talking to these patients all the time, um, because, you know, you've got cultural differences um, where it's still taboo to talk about these things. You've got genetic differences, which have propensity differences for whether something's going to happen or not. You've got different demographics and different, and it's not even racial demographics, it's socioeconomic more than it's anything. So, you know, if you have access to certain resources, you're going to be in a different place. And those resources, um, you know, 
it's great to say we're going to put this in a kiosk in in every mall in the United States. But if you've got a, if you've got thirty percent of people who've never been to Kenwood Mall that live in Cincinnati, then what good's that that kiosk going to do, <laughs> right? Yeah. So you've got to get it where the people are every day. That is so important. Thank you for expounding on that. I mean, again, hitting so many things that I I frequently talk about um, is that our perception of why a person is doing something is the story we make up. And so often you look at um, how uh, marginalized groups of people, whether they're children or not, um, whether that is based on race, whether it's based on social economics, is sometimes um, why a child is doing something is they're acting out, right? Or it's criminal or it's juvenile. It's delinquent. I mean, juvenile is delinquent. And, and so if that's the story we're forming, then we are not assessing for mental health issues. We're not assessing for suicidality. And so that, you know, that's a, a whole missed uh, opportunity to get someone the help they need. Um, you know, I do work all across the city, whether I'm you know, working in a a very impoverished area or whether I'm in Indian Hill working at the school and it looks different if to the to the naked eye. Right. When we are assigning kind of intent to why someone is doing something that they're doing. But when we're able to take three steps back and we're able to realize that all behavior has meaning and is trying to meet a need and people are seeking safety it really does take on a different dynamic but it's something that people are not trained to do often so to hear that you are working to put this in the hands of where people are is super super important because you know someone who has access you know i'm in my office is in mason right I'm private pay. Someone who has access to come see me is experiencing life differently than a whole lot of people who, who, you know, live in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so being able to put this in places where people are and training people on how to use it uh, feels very, very important. And uh, yeah, I have a lot of gratitude for the work that you and Clergen Health are doing. Is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners about the work you all are doing? Is there a call to action? Is there what what can people do who have been listening and have maybe heard some things about suicide that they've just never heard before? It's never been talked about and and they they want to they're interested. What would you say to that listener? So a few things, I guess. Um if I didn't say, I think I'm supposed to say that our product is about to be launched. Either that or I was supposed to not reveal that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, there's a press release coming out soon about a new product that, that we're about to release that's already being used in some of the schools in, in Cincinnati um, and, and a couple of universities around the United States. Um, and so we're extremely excited about that. Any young company is, is thrilled when, uh, when new products uh, actually come out on the market. We've um, we've had a lot going on with um, clinical trials and studies and, and it being used in pilot situations. And now it's um, becoming standard of care for for some of the agencies that support um, school aged children in um, in greater Cincinnati. So that's that's very gratifying for me. Um, we um, I think. So you, you actually had a whole lot of sub questions in that question. I think it's I, I think that one thing that that people so there is still, I would say this, people um, 
ask us a lot uh, when we first start talking about this technology about it being, well, most people talk about it being very exciting. Uh, some people either later go to what are you doing about like the stigma and people being worried about, you know, maybe it's a little creepy that something's listening in and, you know, and, it, and it's like, well, it's not, you know, it's, it's not a lot different than, um, a, you know, a doctor. And I'm going to say this with air quotes so that nobody miss, <laughs> mishears what I'm about to say, you know, those real diseases where we do blood tests and we take x-rays and all those other things. Right. Um, you know, now we're trying to actually put like, tools in the hands of, of uh, these mental health professionals so that we can start treating mental health like, like a real disease. Um, but, you know, so it's not creepy. We do tests for everything else. Why would we not do tests and technology for this? But, um, you know, like anything else, um, they do worry, and rightfully so, that um, this kind of information could be used against a person, right? So, you know, it's um, what what you don't want um, and what we work very hard to not let happen with any of our customers is, you know, you would never want to do this. Um, you know, I always use the example, if you tested everybody with this in your school system and anybody who got above, a you know, an 87 on the scale, you, you stapled that to their um, to their permanent record and said, sorry, no no college for you, right? We're, we're putting you in the, we're taking you out of your AP classes and putting you down in the basement because we're worried about you. And that's not the way to use these technologies, right? The, the idea here is to see things early, to see things that are maybe being missed um, in, a, in an individual and to get them, get them help, right? And that help hopefully comes early on, the, the, the more and more we can take this and like I said earlier, put it in the places where people are, you know, by the time you get to a mental health professional, you've something has happened um, more than likely. Right. Either you've acted out or you've decided yourself as an adult, you need to do this as a child. You've probably acted out. Something bad has happened at school. Um, you waited around for six months to get an appointment at, you know, one of the local places that are just overfilled with with people who need help because we don't have enough resources. And then, and now you're, now you're in the mental health care system. And the hope would be that this technology sees things sooner because you're, you're looking at kids in school. This isn't just a kid's product. I mean, two thirds of our studies have been on adults, but you're, you're catching people in primary care and in places early on so that it's easier, relatively easier to, to treat these, um, these issues and you never get to the point where you end up having to be tested in the emergency department to see if you're suicidal or not, because you never get to the emergency department. So what I would say though, is to the parents, especially out there, if you're thinking about, you know, we've seen it happen and, um, you know, the, the demographics are, are interesting around this, but, um, you know, some of the schools, when they start to implement mental health programs, whether it's us or anything, the parents are very concerned about that because they don't want their child to be, labeled. And, you know, I, and I firmly believe after speaking to all these superintendents, I've been very um, excited to understand that they are very focused on mental health now. And, and you know, this, this whole concept of ready to learn, and they liken it to back in the day when they had to start providing lunches to, to children and, you know, coats for kids and all that type of stuff, because they need these kids to be ready to learn and they've taken on this responsibility. So they're not there trying to weed out people. They're there trying to help the children. So at a minimum, don't fight these programs from being put in place in your schools and, 
And really what you should be doing is going and asking what they are doing for these things, right? I mean, this is where your kids are most of the waking day, right? Um, and so this is a, a golden opportunity to be watching for issues that, that can be, um, you know, whether they can be solved or at least lessened, uh, depending on what type of um, disease states are there, um, you know, let your schools help. They are there. They're trying to help um, and, and demand that they do. Right. Um, there are certain schools that we have talked to that say that their parents would never allow it. Not just us, any mental health type thing. And and I say, well, then you need to educate your parents because why would you not want to save your child's life? Yeah. And to know that, you know, any tool that is misused can become a weapon that's right. happened so often. And, you know, when I, t it's constant, the, the stigma, um, I think like every other system, mental health has been used to perpetuate oppression. And it's so hard knowing that history um, and the relevance of it to so many people and also knowing that there are those of us who are really here to help people heal um, and to feel safe where they are. And so such a good point, you know, to listeners who may be parents uh, with school age children and programs are coming in, you know, taking the opportunity to learn more about what they are, to ask the relevant questions and to get clarity, um, but know that we're coming from such a stigmatized perspective of mental health, not because it's at all new, but because like we've been saying the whole episode, we don't talk about it. And so I just really genuinely appreciate um, that insight for uh, for the listeners. Um, for those who don't know, September is um, Suicide Prevention Month. And so we were really eager to make sure that this information got out to you all this month uh, to start the conversations so that you can continue the conversations uh, because it's very relevant. Um, Don, if someone is interested in getting in touch with you or Clarigen Health or um, has more information or wants more information, how can they reach out to you and the company? So probably like any good company, we have a website. I mean, so clarigenhealth.com. Clarigent is C-L-A-R-I-G-E-N-T health.com. Um, certainly has contact uh, pages and those types of things and, and information about our products. Um, I'm very... Uh, so besides, I was going to say, I'm, I'm very uh, active in the community and you know, if you go to my LinkedIn page, all of my contact information is there, including my cell phone number. I, I take calls 24 hours a day um, because I'm a workaholic who never goes to sleep, um, which is something I'm working on with my personal psychiatrist. Um, so, um, you know, it, those are probably the best ways to contact uh, the company. Um, we, we are very quick to get back to people. Um, you know, I also run a... Uh, suicide um, prevention foundation that I started um, after my son, Justin uh, took his life, which is uh, suicidefoundation.org. Um, unbelievably, I was able to get that URL. Um, and so, um, yeah, so Clarigent, like I said, we're, uh, if for no other reason, it's suicide prevention month, but you're going to be seeing a lot of uh, 
press about us in the next couple of weeks with a lot of things we have going on and, um, and the website is the best way to go. Awesome. So Don, I always ask my guests to kind of round out our time together by giving a little known fun or interesting fact about themselves. So what you got? Yeah, so that's interesting. So I, um, I was, uh, I was actually asked this question recently and I kind of just blew it off with something semi-boring, like I've been coaching soccer for 17 years and I played since I was seven years old or something like that. But I was talking to uh, my co-founder about this very thing earlier today. And, um, and he reminded me, which I had forgotten that I, in my life have never lost a beer chugging contest ever. (laughs) That's awesome. So, I was eager to see where we were going, but he reminded you, you've never lost a beer chugging contest ever. Right. So that's awesome. I am, uh, I, I, I have per, I, I actually don't do it as much as I used to in my youth, but, um, or not my youth, I guess, but in my early adulthood. But, uh, I, uh, I have a ability to open my throat and down a beer as fast as it can come out of a, mug. So, well, I can uh, assure you that that is a very unique fun fact for the labors of love. Anyway, no one else uh, can tout that. So (laughs) thank you for sharing. Uh, Don, I genuinely appreciate you being here, uh, being our guest, um, bringing not just the information about your technology, but sharing so vulnerably your story. So thank you so much for being our guest. Well, thank you for having me. and, and, And honestly, thank you for everything you do. I appreciate it. So uh, in addition to thanking Don for joining us, I would like to thank Trey Angel, who provides the music for the Labors of Love podcast, as well as to my producer, Jay Sugg from Instant Classic Media. And as always, I want to thank you, my guest, for joining. I don't take it for granted that you spend this time with us. If you want to get in touch with me, if you have suggestions for content or guests, please reach out to the website, www.thelaborsoflove.com. We are on all the major social media outlets. Don't forget our YouTube channel and our Therapy Thursday videos. And of course, please don't forget to share, review, give us the five-star rating and share the podcast everywhere you get your podcast. Until we connect again, you all be well.